This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Elliot Ackerman. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times Magazine, among others. He is also a former Marine and served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. His novel, Dark at the Crossing, tells the tale of two strangers who meet and try to cross the border from Turkey into Syria, each for individual reasons. Elliot Ackerman began the interview explaining what called him to military service. It's sort of a complex question, sort of, sort of layered. I think, you know, one layer is I grew up abroad uh, in London. And so, um, you know, that afforded me a chance to really travel widely. And I think it sort of almost gave me like an outsider's perspective on what it you know, meant to be an American and sort of made me, when I came of age, want to give something back. I also think I was someone who was just sort of always inherently interested in the military. I was an officer, so I went to college first. I think coming out of school, I wanted a job or whether I was good at my job or bad at my job really mattered. You know, I sort of didn't want to go and, you know, make photocopies at a law firm or do some type of office job. So I wanted a lot of responsibility. So when you kind of, you know, blended those three things, it's, it, it led me into, into looking at the military, which is where I wound up going. People can walk away from serving in the Middle East and come out with maybe less empathy or less understanding. And it's and I think that writing is an act of empathy in general. And so I'm wondering, you know, if there was something in the way you were raised or the way you saw things or if there was any incident that that gave you this empathy to stand in other people's shoes. You know, I, I would completely agree with you that, you know, writing is in many respects an act of empathy, whether or not you are, you know, writing across cultures or across time or, you know, writing even something that's very close to your experience. But, you know, you're occupying characters who are not you. It requires you to inhabit somebody else's consciousness. And that's what fiction does. My first two books, which are, you know, both deal with the Middle East and to a degree conflict. You know, I think I went into those experiences and sort of had real real questions um, that I uh, left those experiences still till still having and wanted to sort of examine those those questions through story. Um, and, you know, my first novel, this book, Green on Blue, you know, it's really the story of an American who's murdered by an Afghan, but it's all told from the perspective of an Afghan. And my second novel, Dark at the Crossing, is basically the story of a failed revolution, but it's sort of told through the prism of this failing marriage. And so... Um, you know, there's not only having kind of the empathy that you feel with your characters, but then I would kind of take it one step forward, which is there's almost like you have to have a empathy with a reader who might not have lived and experienced these events. And sort of how do you tell stories that make very complex political events really accessible uh, to people who might not be, you know, engaging with them in their own lives. And, you know, that's something I'm often trying to do in my writing. Um, It's sort of this optimistic act of trying to bring people into stories that are not their own. So, you know, you mentioned this is this story is a failed revolution told through a failed marriage. Why did that catch your attention? Well, you know, I also also work as a journalist and um, have been living, had lived in uh, Istanbul for almost about three years and I'm spending a lot of time in southern Turkey on the Turkish-Syrian border and watching that, uh, you know, that revolution kind of descend into a, a war. 
And um, and the one thing, you know, amongst many of the you know Syrian activists who've been these democratic activists who went out in the streets when the protests were peaceful, right at the outset of the Arab Spring, one refrain I kept hearing over and over from so many of them was um, this idea of, you know, that they completely fell in love with the revolution, that after having lived their lives under an autocratic regime where they had no freedom to sort of live through those heady days where they thought they could completely, they could change their country, bring about democratic reforms and, and speak freely, you know, they were completely enamored by that, fell in love with it. If their families didn't support them, they turned their back on their families. And then, you know, at the time I was down there, where I say sort of the, the revolution was ending and the war was really beginning because it had, you know, all those aspirational ideas were sort of coming apart. The predominant emotion that was articulated to me was that, you know, we have been in love with this, this revolution and now it's really been destroyed and it's failed and we're heartbroken. And so there was amongst these activists, this real palpable articulated and unarticulated sense of heartbreak. And so as I was sort of circling around the theme of this story, you know, the question kind of, it became obvious is, you know, this is sort of a love story. It's a story about heartbreak. And so the, the novel kind of pursues the, you know, these political themes through a more intimate theme of this of this marriage. It's actually, you know, it's a pretty quiet book. I mean, most of it takes place in an apartment building. But to me, that was sort of is was in a story the entry point into the revolution it was telling the story of this failed marriage. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Elliot Ackerman, journalist and author of the novels Green on Blue and Dark at the Crossing. The novel begins with Harris. He has become an American, although he was born Iraqi. He was an interpreter during the Iraqi war. He had lost his parents, his mom in childbirth, his dad later. And he came to America, basically got his sister settled, um, got her to college, got her, you know, she got engaged. And he saw that he, he had basically done, I guess, his job. So he decides to go back and fight for freedom in Syria. Can you just talk about his decision to just go back and fight for what he believed in in Syria? When the book opens, you meet Harris, and he is about to um, try to cross the border the first time. And his first border crossing, without, I think, spoiling too much of the novel, is, is unsuccessful. And so much of the book deals with him, you know, trying to cross into Syria, you know, frankly, to fight for reasons that he himself isn't totally clear on. You know, but what we see and what he tells us is that, you know, he, he fought uh, alongside the Americans uh, as an interpreter in Iraq and sort of has really conflicted feelings about that experience. Um, on the one hand, it afforded him his American citizenship. And on the other hand, he participated in a lot of things that he wasn't proud of. And so when we meet him, he sort of has this aspirational idea, you know, maybe if I go and fight in Syria, which in his mind is this sort of irrefutable cause to, you know, to fight for democratic freedom alongside the free Syrian army, I can in some ways redeem myself. And, you know, the more we start to understand Harris and the more the story develops, what we kind of start to see is that you know, he doesn't exactly know it's, uh, all of the reasons that he's fighting. And, you know, and that's sort of one of the themes that I wanted to get out in the book is, you know, can someone be engaged in an action that on the one hand, you know, it might be a redemptive action, but the very same action could also be interpreted as a self-destructive action. You know, and that's sort of the duality that Harris is wrestling with throughout the book. Is he trying to redeem himself? By going into Syria, or in some ways, is he is he maybe trying to destroy himself? 
there's a certain level of hubris that comes with thinking that, okay, what I have to do is get my sister settled and then she doesn't need me anymore. And I'm going to go fight for the freedom with the freedom fighters because they do need me. But yet he was kind of a quiet, contemplative character. Do you think it's fair to say that he had hubris? Well, if you read him and think that he has hubris and he has hubris, I mean, I think it, it's, you know, each, each reader should have the, the ability to read the character, you know, as, as, as they feel, uh, as they feel the, the character um, portrays himself to them. Uh, you know, I'll just maybe say this, you know, like when writing the book, you know, I'm often pulling from things in my experience or, you know, I have those, those ideas r- running around my head, but, you know, also things that I'm reading. And what, one particular scene kind of stuck with me from something you know, I've read a long time ago. It's from, uh, it's a scene from Anna Karenina. Which uh, you know, if you if you've read it or your listeners have read it, um, it's a story of story of Anna written by Leah Tolstoy. She is in this affair with this guy named Count Vronsky. I um, mean, Vronsky usually doesn't come off when you're you know when I was taught Anna Karenina in college, he doesn't come off as a very sympathetic character. So, you know, sort of spoiler alert: they have this big affair, love affair in you know Imperial Russia. Uh, Vronsky is shamed. He's a military officer. He's forced to quit his regiment. Anna is ostracized from polite society. And here's a spoiler. The novel ends with Anna throwing herself in front of a train and, kill, and committing suicide. But there's this sort of moment. Uh, it's, it's actually after Anna's killed herself. And it's Vronsky. And what we learn about Vronsky's end. And at the very end of the book, one of the characters, you don't even, Tolstoy doesn't even write the scene. He just he tells it to you secondhand. I always thought it was an incredibly sad scene. But it's um, one of the characters says, hey, basically says, hey, what happened with Vronsky? And said, oh, a friend of mine said they saw him on a train heading out to the Caucasus because there was a war in the Caucasus. And they saw him in the train and he was going to rejoin his regiment. And I always thought this was incredibly sad because, A, he's on a train. So the image of the train and Anna's just throwing herself in front of a train. But also it's this question, right, of is Vronsky, and it's what I mentioned before, is he getting on his train to go join his regiment and fight because he's trying to redeem himself and get back into polite society through some act on the battlefield? Or is he basically on this train going to do exactly what Anna did, which is to commit suicide on the battlefield and get himself killed in the war? And Tolstoy never gives us an answer, but I found it to be very poignant. And when you meet Harris, he's sort of like Vronsky on the train. So is it an act of hubris? You know, I don't know if it's so much an act of hubris. You know, I said it is, is, you know, as I would say, you know, it's hubris for any of us to just kind of want to find some type of larger meaning in our lives. Uh, and for Harris... You know, one of the themes in the book for Harris, too, is that you know, he's someone who was sort of born of war and he is kind of captured in these cycles of violence. And so he looks to war and to revolution to try to find that purpose. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A question that I had from the novel was, what are the consequences of what we think is the right thing? And is there a right thing? I mean, for him, this was a choice he made, but is there one right thing? Well, I think there's never any right thing. You know, I think when we meet Harris at the opening of the book, he is trying to cross in Syria to fight and his conception of what that experience will be like is somewhat simplistic. Um, that he will go link up with this band of, you know, quote unquote, good guys 
to go fight for a good cause. And very early on in the book, that idea uh, is disproven, and he realizes that what he is involving himself in is far more complex. You know, in the opening 30 pages of the book, he's basically trying to cross the border, and he gets mugged, and everything is taken from him. And he meets a man named Amir. And um, Amir was an activist in the Syrian Civil War and is now living as a refugee in a, in, a, in a town along the border. And Amir agrees to take Harris in. And when Harris goes to stay with Amir at his apartment, he meets Amir's wife, uh, a woman named Daphne, a French-Syrian woman. And what you learn about them is that their uh, daughter had been killed in an explosion in their apartment building one day. And Amir was basically out running an errand. Daphne and the daughter were at home. It's a huge explosion. The building collapses. Amir runs to the building sort of miraculously. He's able to pull his wife out of the rubble, um, but he's faced with his choice. He, he's pretty sure his daughter's dead. She's under the rubble. They're not going to be able to get her out. So he rushes his wife across the hospital and she survives. But when his wife comes to, she cannot accept that loss because she hasn't seen it. And so another question emerges in there when this couple, when Harris meets them, is that Amir does not have no interest in ever returning to Syria. But Daphne, his wife, wants to cross and try to find out, you know, have some sense of closure with the daughter. So, you know, these questions of right and wrong, you know, what's right? Is it right for Amir not to want to go back? Is it right for his his wife not to want to go back? And is it and for Harris, you know, he's sort of looking for this cause. And so kind of the not the central question of the novel becomes who's going to cross the border, who's going to stay, and why? And there are no easy answers to that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Elliot Ackerman, journalist and author of the novels Green on Blue and Dark at the Crossing. You know, the other question that it raised for me was, do these characters have anything to lose? For Harris, you know, he felt like he got everything sort of settled in his life. Everything seemed like buttoned up. And for Daphne, who wanted to cross the border with him, I don't think she was satisfied until she found out what happened to her daughter either way. So when you feel like you have nothing left, do you have anything to lose? And to me, that was another question that the novel asked. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, with fiction, too, it, it's, you know, there aren't answers. It's just sort of the posing of, of larger questions through story. Um, you know, I think one of the central questions of the book, too, is, you know, is it better to keep faith with a cause, no matter how hopeless that seems, if it's a cause you believe in? You know, or is it better to cut your losses and try to rebuild from the wreckage? You know, in this marriage between Daphne and Amir, that's sort of the central question of their marriage is, you know, Amir wants to just move on. You know, he lost his daughter. You know, his revolution failed. He wants to get on with his life and leave, you know, leave the border area uh, and make his way, you know, potentially to Europe and start over again. You know, and Daphne, uh, you know, as a mother cannot let go of the idea that if there is even the slightest probability that her daughter could be alive, she has to go back and search for her. You know, even she knows and she does know it's going to cost her her life to do it. And I think in those situations, you have to ask yourself, what will you become? And it's so easy to pass judgment on other people. And you can't when everyone's kind of fighting for their lives. And that came up a lot for Harris about seeing, you know, were you doing enough for the cause? Were you fighting? Were you just trying to live your life? And at one point, he Daphne works in a hospital and he went to the hospital with her someone who stole money from him, all his money that he was going to use to cross the border came into the hospital and was very sick. 
And he was asking Daphne to help him get information. And you have this line and Daphne's talking to him and she said, but I won't help under the assumption that you're a good man punishing a bad one. She added, I'm exhausted by those ideas. He took something from you. You're going to take it back. Nothing more. Agreed. And for me, this was one of the most potent lines in the book. And I'm wondering if you could talk about writing it and the ideas behind it. Well, I think it's just the idea, you know, that, that, um, and, you know, having spent time around conflicts and, and wars, when, you know, when wars open up, there is often a lot of rhetoric around the ideals that people are fighting for, ideas and who's right and who's wrong. And, you know, now we're all going to kill each other to, to, to sort that out. You know, but as wars go on and on and on, we certainly, you know, at this moment have a number of wars, particularly in the U.S. that we're involved in, that are just have slipped into these cycles of violence, you know, that's in Afghanistan and Iraq or Syria. Uh, and no one talks in those terms anymore. You know, the war has just sort of now feeds on itself. And I think that's sort of what Daphne's getting at is, you know, I can deal with you getting your stuff back and I can deal with helping you. But the thing I cannot deal with and I will not abide with anymore is moralizing because it's the moralizing is the evil and insidious thing that started this whole cycle of violence. And is that something you saw? You know, I would say what I have seen from covering conflict more is that the closer you get to the actual fighting and the violence, the the less and less moralizing you see. I mean, it was my first real experience, uh, you know, in conflict was a as a 24 year old rifle platoon commander in Iraq uh, as a Marine, you know, in the infantry. And, um, you know, we were fighting in 2004. I fought in Fallujah. You know, I assure you in that battle, like there was very, very little talk amongst the people fighting it about, you know, how important it was for all of us to help secure the Iraqi elections or spread democracy. You know, your concerns were much more immediate and visceral. And I think that that's something I've seen carry over since I've you know, left the military as a writer, as a journalist. Um, when you're, you know, really dealing with people who are living these things on a daily basis, you start to see less and less of the moral of the moralizing and more and more just people focused on the the day to day the day to day just realities and challenges of their lives and circumstances. When Harris meets with this person, Saeed, who stole from mm-hmm. him, he says to him, I traveled here to help your country and you robbed me. And I, I felt like Harris had that experience with a few of the characters he met. Like I'm I'm here to help you. I'm here doing this bidding. How can you treat me this way? Like, maybe it's a naivety or just sort of like he 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 hasn't been on the scene in a while, so he doesn't understand. But I'm wondering if you can talk about that sentiment. You know, without giving too much away in the book, but you know, this 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 character Said who he meets is someone who originally was involved in convincing Harris to come to Syria. You know, he does some things that are not nice to Harris at the end of the day that are uh, a little bit duplicitous. But you also realize, you know, he's just a guy who's trying to survive. And he has had so much taken from him when you learn his backstory. You know, it's very difficult to pass judgment on people when they're just trying to do their very best to survive, to keep their children alive, even if that involves, you know, stealing here or there or doing things that in the normal course, you know, they would never do. Um, and so there's sort of this idea that, you know, the, the, the scope of destruction and the challenges of survival that war can foist onto people um, sort of can make can make thieves and criminals of us all. You just think about the nature of war. I mean, there's something criminal in the nature of war in so much as there's this conflict built into it. You know, one of the fundamental laws 
that is central to all of human civilization across cultures is the law of, you know, thou shalt not kill. But when we go to war, we renounce that law and we engage in wholesale slaughter in the name of preserving our civilization. So there's just this, you know, there's this this duplicity built into into all conflict. He ends up going over the border, and when they get there, they get in this field, and everyone is taken out, and they're asked who they're pledging their allegiance to. And Harris was there to fight, but he couldn't step up and blatantly say what he was there to do. I mean, he suspected that if he did, he would get shot, but he wasn't sure. But I thought this was such a poignant moment that when you are convinced that you want to go fight for freedom— and your very first chance to basically stand up for who you are means that you're going to die. He doesn't do it, both as a literary device and a human device. I'm wondering if you can talk about this. Yeah, well, you know, so, I mean, there's sort of this moment at the end of the book where they're trying, they've crossed into Syria, and it's Harris and um, Daphne, and they're pulled over the side of the road by a bunch of guys wearing um, uniforms from the regime. And, uh, you know, there's this moment where they basically say, you know, anyone, you know, anyone who isn't for the regime, you need to stand up right now and volunteer yourselves. And um, they're with a young guy who has helped take them over, who is very anti-regime. And that guy, young guy is just a teenager, stands forward and says, you know, I'm against the regime. And um, they drag him to the side and Harris is going to stand and take a step forward, too. But he kind of can't get up the nerve to do it. And then he feels Daphne hold him in place. And she wants him to just stay by her side. And so he stays with her. Um, And he feels a lot of conflict in the moment about doing that. I sort of don't want to spoil the end of the book. But the fact that he stays with her has very big consequences, uh, very significant consequences. And um, and in that moment, you know, he makes the decision to turn his back on the original cause he'd come over there to support, you know, which is fighting the regime in order to just stand beside Daphne in this moment when he when she needs him to. And, uh, and the implications of that is what basically framed the conclusion of the book. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Elliot Ackerman, journalist and author of the novels Green on Blue and Dark at the Crossing. Did you start writing when you started serving over there, or was that something that came later? No, you know, I, I mean, I did. I studied history and literature at school. Um, and I've always been a reader, and when I, you know, I was in the service for about eight years, and there were maybe one or two times where I had some, you know, very tentative false starts. Like wrote a paragraph maybe twice over eight years, and decided I just couldn't do this. It didn't feel right to be. It just felt weird to be living living certain experiences and trying to write about them while you were living them. I decided to resign out of the service and I was in Afghanistan on a deployment. And the day after I handed in my resignation letter, um, I decided to kind of make another attempt uh, at writing. And um, for whatever psychic reason it was, that was one of my first real serious attempts. Uh, I, wound up, I wound up being a scene that was in a short story I later published. So, um, so for me, I sort of needed to transition out of my life uh, in the military and into my life as a writer, uh, psychically before I could really, uh, apply myself. I was, I was unable to do both at once. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah. You know, I will, I will read to you just right now from 
you know, something I was kind of going over again, um, which is, um, you know, the great playwright Arthur Miller. I was rereading his uh, play, The Crucible, which takes place around Salem witch trials. And I just felt like it was worth revisiting kind of in this, you know, political moment, regardless of whether you're on the right or on the left, where, you know, where emotions are so high. And it's, and to me, it's less that this is a great passage of prose per se, but it's more, you know, thematically what he was dealing with. You know, there's just so many echoes of it today. And so I found myself underlining this one section about a week ago. And so I thought I would just share it. In the countries of the communist ideology, all resistance of any import is linked to the totally malign capitalist succumbi. And in America, any man who is not reactionary in his views is open to the charge of alliance with the red hell. Political opposition, thereby, is given an inhumane overlay, which then justifies the abrogation of all normally applied customs of civilized intercourse. A political policy is equated with moral right, in opposition to it with diabolical malevolence. Once such an equation is effectively made, society becomes a congiere of plots and counterplots, and the main role of government changes from that of arbiter to that of the scourge of God. Do you want to say anything more about that? You know, what he does in this play and what I, you know, what great writing does, um, and frankly, you know, what I humbly aspire to do myself, you know, is to through a story to unpack, you know, you know, what are, can be really dense political themes that if done well, you know, will not only have relevance to the time in which they are written, but will have relevance, you know, for all time and continue to be revisited. And so I think, you know, in re- reading and revisiting The Crucible, you know, it's just, it's, it's just a story that speaks to the kind of uh, political hysteria we're living through at this moment, you know, on both the left and the right. I find myself coming back to these stories, whether it's a play or a novel or, you know, a great piece of nonfiction, you know, to try to understand what I'm living through in a particular moment. So I just bring that up right now because I just, because I feel that that type of work is, is as, is as important today as it's ever been. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or something that you just like how it turned out. Sure. I thought I'd read the beginning of my first novel, Green on Blue, and I'll read the opening, and then maybe I'll tell you a little bit why it was tricky. So this is the opening of Green on Blue. Many would call me a dishonest man, but I've always kept faith with myself. There is an honesty in that, I think. I am Ali's brother. We are from a village that no longer exists, and our family was not large or prosperous. The war that came after the Russians, but before the Americans, killed our parents. Of them, I have only dim memories. There is my father's Kalishnikov hidden in a woodpile by the door, him cleaning it, working oiled rags on its parts, and the smell of gunmetal, and feeling safe. There is my mother's secret, the one she shared with me. Once a month, she'd count out my father's earnings from fighting in the mountains or farming. She'd send me and Ali from our village, Sperkai, to the large bazaar in Orgun, a two-day walk. The Orgun bazaar sold everything, fine cooking oils and spices, candles to light our home, and fabrics to repair our clothes. But my mother always entrusted me with a special purchase. Before we left, she would press an extra coin in my hand, one she'd stolen from my father. 
Among the crowded stalls of the bazaar, I would slip away from my brother's watchful eye and buy her a pack of cigarettes, something forbidden to a woman. When we returned home, I would place the pack in her hiding spot, the birchwood cradle where she'd rocked Ali and me as infants. Our mud-walled house was small, two thatch-roofed rooms with a courtyard between them. The cradle was kept in the room I shared with Ali. My mother would never get rid of the cradle. It was the one thing that was truly hers. At night, after we returned from the bazaar, she'd sneak into our room, her small, sandaled feet gliding across the carpets that lined the dirt floor. Her hand would cup a candle, its smothered light casting shadows on her young face, aging her. Her eyes, one brown and the other green, a miracle or defect of birth, shifted about the room. Carefully, she would lean over the cradle as she'd done before when taking us to nurse. She would run her fingers between the blankets that once swaddled my brother and me, and, finding the pack of cigarettes I'd left her, she'd step into the courtyard, and I'd fall back asleep to the faint smell of her tobacco just past my door. This secret made me feel close to my mother. In the years since, I've wondered why she entrusted me with it. At times, I've thought it was because I was her favorite, but this isn't why. The truth is, she recognized in me her own ability to deceive. So that's the opening of this, you know, this novel, Green on Blue, which, as I mentioned, is sort of the story of an American who's killed by an Afghan. And so pulls from the perspective of Aziz. You know, the, this is you know, the, that was his voice uh, that I just read. You know, and this was actually particularly challenging for me to write, not necessarily because the section I read was difficult to write, but because the whole frame of the novel was sort of tough to develop. And so much as, you know, originally this story was told with kind of like a Conradian frame, you know, where it was like Marlowe is on a boat, you know, like in the heart of darkness, sort of like he is telling the story to a group of people. So I sort of had this framework where the narrator wasn't actually Aziz. It was an American intelligence officer, and Aziz is telling his story to that American intelligence officer. And I wrote the whole book that way. Um, the core of the story was all done that way, and I sold the book that way. And then my editor sort of, you know, as we were going over some of the revisions, made the point to me. He said, you know, Elliot, like this American character uh, whose name was Marty, uh, he basically said, you know, Marty – like he's not doesn't feel fully realized. You need you need to make this work. You know, either we need to do more with Marty, or I don't know what you got to do, but it's not working for me. And so I sort of had to go back to the drawing board. So you know, why did I stick this American character in between Aziz and the reader? You know, and the reality was because I felt uncomfortable earlier on, early on, fully occupying the voice of this Afghan character, someone who was so you know at least at face value very different than I was. Um, even though, you know, many of my closest friends had been these Afghans I had fought alongside in the war. But I need to recognize that basically the novel was going to succeed or fail on the merits of Aziz's voice. And I kind of had to go, just go all in. And so it involved me, you know, ripping out this Marty character altogether and just telling the story, you know, Aziz to the reader and not sticking anyone between as a framework. But that was an evolution just to realize that that was the, the right way to handle the book. And sort of anecdotally, um, that character Marty, I'd always wanted to name a character Marty uh, in one of my books because my mother was going to name me Marty and she loved the name. And then she looked it up and realized that Marty, which comes from Martin, uh, means uh, he who loves war. And so she changed my name to Elliot, uh, which is sort of ironic. Um, but in Dark at the Crossing, there is a character named Marty. Where do you write? I often write in uh, cafes or restaurants. I like to uh, get out 
uh, and uh, you know, out of my house. Um, so I'm usually in a cafe uh, writing. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I spend time with my kids. Uh, I travel. Uh, I find that the journalism I do, although it is writing, gets me out into the world and away from my fiction and often feeds my fiction. So, uh, you yeah, that, know, that's, that's, that's usually sort of the rhythm of my work in my life. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You know, I think there's some writers who really show to a whole, you know, wide crop of readers. I'm, I'm, I kind of play my manuscripts a little bit closer to my chest. I probably have about maybe three readers I'll show something to before I would show it to my agent or my editor, one of whom is my mother. Uh, Because I think the thing that's key in a good reader is someone who, A, is invested or loves you enough to really take the time to properly go through a manuscript, but who also loves you enough to tell you the things you don't want to hear. And I think the worst thing you could do is to give a manuscript to sort of a friend or a casual friend who just is going to tell you they think it's great. So, uh, you know, your your mother amongst all people doesn't want to see you get hurt. And so I've always found her to be a very thorough and honest reader. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, you just have to sort of keep on, uh, you have to keep on going. You know, my, uh, my girlfriend is also a writer and we have this thing that we say, which is it's, uh, it's not necessarily, you know, about how many times you, you know, to use a baseball metaphor, hit the ball. It's really about up at bats. So, you know, you need to just keep getting up, keep swinging, keep doing the work. You know, that sort of persistence is ultimately, you know, what pays off and will get your work out there. So I think I deal with rejection through just persistence. And what is your favorite word? I don't have a favorite word. I like them all. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Elliot Ackerman, journalist and author of the novels Green on Blue and Dark at the Crossing. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.